There's a lot of fear on the part of people who are not involved in the ecumenical movement. That the ecumenical movement is only about erasing distinctions. You know, the ecumenical movement is not founded or based upon some harebrained ideas. The key Bible passage is the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, that they may be one. You don't lose your identity by being part of a community effort to help something in the community for the glory of God. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we have an exciting podcast. I have Dr. Denny Forten as my guest, and we are talking today about ecumenism, which is unity among the various different churches. Now, ecumenism has been something that, you know, a lot of people have felt wary about and cautious about because the question comes, you know, how united is too united? And a big part of the Protestant movement was about the ways that we are different uh, from the Catholic Church, the ways that we are different from other denominations, and the theology that makes us very distinct. But among our differences, is there a place for unity? And what does ecumenism mean today? Is it the same as what it looked like in the past? Or has there been some changes? And to what level can we buy into this idea? And to what level should we proceed with caution? So today we have Dr. Denny Forten to really help us walk through some of these questions, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, if you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, please be sure to do so at Advent Next. You can follow me, Kendra Arsenault, at Kendra Arsenault with an X. But right now, this is Advent Next. to be with you, Kendra, and uh, to have this conversation. Thank you for inviting me to have uh, this podcast here with you. Uh, as you say, yes, I'm a professor of uh, historical theology at the Seminary of Andrews University. I've been here for 27 years, going on 28, uh, teaching at the seminary uh, of all these years. I've also had a number of administrative hats while I've been here. I was the uh, director of the MDiv program for three years, I believe. I was the associate dean for four, and then I was the seminary for seven years. And so I've, I've had uh, many of these responsibilities, uh, attended a lot of church meetings, a lot of university meetings uh, of the academic world. Uh, but my passion is really to teach, uh, to explore themes of theology, the development of ideas and concepts and doctrines in Christianity. That's what I've been doing. Uh, and also a lot of uh, Adventist studies and Ellen White studies as well. Now for your listeners who are uh, wondering now about my accent, I am a French Canadian. I'm from Quebec City, moved here to Andrews University about 27 years ago. Wow. And am I saying, am I saying your name correctly? Fortin, is that how you say it? Well, it's uh, Fortin, eh? Uh, that's a little, a little difficult of, of, mm -hmm. a, of a nasal sound for most uh, native English speakers, but that's okay. okay. Uh, I'm so, <laughs> so glad to have you on today. And I took your class last semester, and one of the topics in that class is we talked about ecumenism. And I, I think that there are some people listening today who might be familiar with what that is, some people who 
might not, but it can be kind of a hot topic uh, when we talk about uh, church uh, discussion. So can you just start off telling us what is ecumenism and maybe why is there, uh, why is there so much controversy around it? Well, when you approach the topic of uh, the ecumenical movement or ecumenism, you really open up a, a very broad topic here and you could approach it from so many angles and so many perspectives. So within the context of, of this podcast and uh, fairly brief conversation here today, let me see perhaps a couple of things. The word ecumenism, first of all, refers to uh, something that has to do with the entire world. And it comes from the Greek word uh, that meant uh, household. And, and so wherever people lived in this world, it has to do with the people. And in the religious context, the word has been adopted to refer to the entire household of God, uh, the people of God all over the earth. And so the ecumenical movement in the modern era, in the last 120 some years or so, the movement has meant a, a desire among Christians of many of all denominations to discuss between themselves what it would take, what it would mean to exhibit, to show, to demonstrate to the world that there is some kind of unity in Christ. And, and so the ecumenical movement has become a movement for Christian unity. And it has... Uh, started about the year 1910, plus or minus there, at least the modern ecumenical movement, and had its heydays in the 1960s, 1970s, and really has come down a great deal since then. About 10, 20 years ago, the movement almost died out, a lot of financial issues in a lot of ecumenical organizations. It's very stagnant at the moment. Uh, but uh, and again, it depends what you mean by ecumenical movement there, something that yeah. is very organized, like all of the national council of churches, for examples, that are organized institutions and um, councils. They have finances and budgets and programs. And then there is a more generic ecumenical movement, which really embraces anybody that believes that in Jesus, we have some kind of unity. That's very, very broad. So you've got a very broad definition to a very narrow one. And so it's all over the map. And when gotcha. you think about uh, church unity also, there's not only one model of church unity. Some people think ecumenism and almost immediately the, the thought that comes to their mind is that one day there's going to be one big, huge super church that will likely be led uh, by the Pope, the Roman Catholic Pope, and it's his bishops and so on. And so that's usually the one model, quite pejorative, by the way, that people have in mind. Mm. Uh, but that is really a model that is not really discussed nowadays in the ecumenical movement. And so when we talk about ecumenical models or ecumenical uh, activities, uh, the range of definitions and the range of models is very broad. Mm. Some refer to probably uh, to the merger of denominations. Sometimes it happens that denominations that are very close uh, in affinity or religious heritage may merge together uh, to create a new entity, a new denomination like the United Church of Christ here uh, in the U.S., or uh, the United Methodist Church, or the United Church of Canada, and so on. These are mergers of denominations. Gotcha. But nowadays, the, 
model of church unity that is predominantly being discussed is one of simple recognition that a group of Christians in one denomination recognizes a group of, an, of, of Christians in another denomination as being true and genuine brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, the activities of both denominations are, are agreed to, are accepted, the way they do the Lord's Supper, the way they do baptism, uh, the way they do ordination, the meaning of church discipline and so on, that they kind of have an agreement between themselves that they will accept one another as being true and genuine expressions of the church of God. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really all over the map here when we talk about ecumenism. You know, as you're talking, it, it seems like, you know, Christianity has a, a history of kind of factioning, right? And, and wanting to make itself different from each other, right? So like you had, uh, all Christians were basically kind of a single denomination, right? Up until Luther and, and the Protestant, uh, you know, the Protestant Reformation, where there was like, okay, now there's a distinction. And ever since then, we keep kind of factioning into differences. You know, what's the, and I want you to continue your thought, but I guess I was thinking like, um, it, are people operating out of a fear of moving back into a space of, you know, unity in which they feel like a part of themselves or part of their faith will be lost. Um, is that kind of maybe some of the fear behind why there's resistance around those types of dialogues? I, I think you're right to highlight church history in some sense here. When we talk about the ecumenical movement, we cannot do it out of a context of church history. And since the fourth, fifth century, there's been all kinds of divisions within Christianity and you've got churches all over the world that have a little bit of a different history from other churches in other parts of the world. So in the Middle East, you've got all kinds of ancient Christian churches. They're called Orthodox churches of the East within Muslim countries. They've been very much independent for centuries. They've, they have a flavor that is really different from the uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox churches of the various Eastern European countries or the Western churches, either Roman Catholic or the variety of Protestant churches. So there's been all kinds of flavors of Christianity through the centuries. And we cannot forget that when we talk about the ecumenical movement. Every church group, every church uh, heritage has its existence for very particular reasons, whether it is uh, the divisions between uh, East and West in the Middle Ages, or between uh, Christianity or uh, Muslim countries, uh, even earlier than that in the early Middle Ages, or Protestant Reformation, 16th, 17th century, and all of these divisions. People know of their history, what, what they prize, what they love, and, and that is what gives them an identity. It's not only a cultural identity, it's also a religious identity. It has meaning, it gives them identity and meaning. And one of the fears of, of the ecumenical movement is to downplay these identities. It is to downplay the reasons why various religious groups exist, what has given them existence and, and raison d'être, a reason to exist, and what has also given them meaning. And there's a lot of fear on the part of people who are not involved in the ecumenical movement that the ecumenical movement is only about erasing distinctions mm. so that there would be one big blah 
kind of denomination in the end, or perhaps a denominational group would become priority or would dominate all of the smaller ones. And, and the differences would be obliterated, erased, and, and no longer there. Mm. Uh, that's one of the big fears of the ecumenical movement. Although if you look carefully at the last hundred years or so of, of very active ecumenical conversations, uh, I think a lot of these fears were unfounded mm. because very, very few denominational, denominational groups have disappeared because of ecumenical dialogues. Yes, there have been some mergers of denominations, but they tended to be denominations that were already very close to each other in cultures and in religious traditions. And so they merged together to form something new mm. because they already had a heritage together of some kind. <clears throat> the big mergers of very, very different denominations have not really happened. There's not been that many of them and they're not the talk of the car. They're not the conversational uh, points at the moment. It's, it's not where the conversation is going. Mm. But yes, you're right to highlight the fear of, of what the ecumenical movement uh, might bring up and why people are he uh, hesitant about it. Do you think that, you know, you have this kind of uh, commission from Jesus that he wishes his disciples would all be one, right? And is, is, is that kind of where maybe some of the motivation of where this kind of ecumenical movement started of saying like, hey, like a better Christian witness in the world is if we could find uh, unity. And maybe maybe you can talk on like, what's the place for unity? And then what's also the place for dis disunity or distinction? Sure. And that's where we get to the core of this conversation, really. Uh, yes, it's good to talk about church history and, and the reasons for the differences and why they might be good and, and uh, we should not give them up. But then there are some biblical reasons uh, that are undergirding the modern ecumenical movement. There are a number of biblical texts. You know, the ecumenical movement is not founded or based upon some harebrained ideas that some people had, you know, 110 years ago. It's really based upon three or four key Bible passages. The key Bible passage is the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Now I'm quoting from, from uh, memory here, John 17, verses 20 to 23. I don't pray only for them. Jesus is having a prayer with the Father just before he goes to Gethsemane, right after the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. So Jesus is praying not only for them, but also for his disciples. And he prays that just as him and the Father have been one, he prays that his disciples and those who would believe in Jesus because of their testimony would all be one, that they may be one. John 17, 20 to 23. That is the key Bible passage that is undergirding any conversation, any model, any hints of, of the ecumenical movement today. And we really need to ask ourselves this question as Seventh-day Adventists. This is Jesus' last prayer, just before Gethsemane, before he dies on the cross. And it is the last segment of Jesus' last prayer, where he talks about this wish he has of having his disciples united. We need to ask ourselves, just like perhaps other Christians have asked themselves for years, is this only a wish on the part of Jesus? 
Or is this prayer of Jesus something that should be part of our strategic mission plan? Should this be part of the Seventh-day Adventist mission statement that we believe, you know, that we should have Christian unity? That, that all the disciples of Jesus, and that's not only us, Jesus has disciples in all other Christian denominations, that all of us would be one and would have a communion of some kind. Now, of course, we, we need to define what that communion is. Uh, we need to define how it could happen and what would be some of the modalities and the restrictions. Okay, sure, fine, we, certainly. And I know that we as Adventists would probably have a number of items that we would want to put on a list of shopping list of what unity is going to look like, you know, keeping the Sabbath, the commandments of God, believing that Jesus is coming soon, taking care of our bodies, and so on. I think every denominational group has a wish list when it comes to ecumenical conversations. Mm. But that was the prayer of Jesus. Be that as it may, that is the prayer of Jesus. Should it be our prayer as well? So that's mm. key passage number one. There are two or three others that are just as key that are undergirding a biblical foundation of the ecumenical movement. Another one is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's this long passage on the various gifts of the Spirit. And at the beginning of this passage, Paul says to the Corinthians, but no, you remember, uh, there's a body, and the body has many members, and all the members are needed together in order to form one body. Now, he's using the metaphor of the body, Christ is the head, we are the body, to refer to the people of God. So there is one body with many members, and we have unity, therefore, with one another, and that's why it's important. Now, yes, likely Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 was referring a whole lot more probably to the local congregation or congregations in Corinth and all the problems they were having between themselves. But could this be applied in a, in a broader perspective when we refer to the body of Christ as being all of the Christians on earth? Mm. A third text is one coming from Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, uh, in Christ there is no male, no female, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free. We are all one in Christ. Yes, we are all one in Christ. Could we add to that list of qualifiers, male, female, Greek, uh, and, and slaves, and, and free, and so on? Could we add all the names of our denominations, and then we are all one in Christ? Those are the key Bible passages. Uh, there's a few more. Uh, Ephesians probably is another. The entire epistle to the Ephesians is really about unity in Christ. So these are the key undergirding Bible passages. Strangely, maybe not, we forget. We have a statement of fundamental belief. You know, we've got 28 statements in our fundamental beliefs. Number 14 is on unity in the church. And the Bible references that are given at the bottom of the statement include all of these key Bible passages that are undergirding uh, the biblical foundation of the ecumenical movement today. We, we use them all. We believe in them all. But we tend to look at this fundamental belief number 14 
as referring to ourselves, unity within ourselves. I, I think that really the statement refers to unity of all Christians, not just ourselves, because of the word church that is being used there. That's a very broad word that is used in our statement of fundamental beliefs. Mm. I, I think I love this because it, it definitely highlights, you know, the motivation behind why there's this movement of unity. And I guess, you know, I think where there's probably the disagreement is like in the practice and the practicality of how does this break down? Right. So like what is maybe the minimum requirement of unity? And then what's like the like and, and, and is there a place and what is the place for division? And I think that's kind of the the line of like, and what ways can we be one with everyone? And what ways do we maintain our distinctions? Okay, now you, you, we're beginning to be uh, coming to, to the core of the topic and, and where it becomes a little bit more muddy and a little mm. bit more difficult. Uh, yeah. And all denominational groups also have these very same kind of conversations and are asking the same kinds of questions you, you just asked just a moment ago. Yes. Uh, certainly, there are reasons why we should believe in unity. And I think the core basic ingredients of unity is the fact that, and that's from Paul, and that's also from Jesus in John chapter 17. The basic core of unity, according to this biblical foundation, is that we all believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Period. That's it. Because um, the Baptist friends down the road or the Lutheran friends down the road believe that Jesus is their savior, immediately that creates a bond of unity between me and them and them and me. We, we, you know, we may not acknowledge it. We may not think about it. We may not say it. Um, and we may not even come to talk about it. But there is immediately a bond of unity between all Christians of all denominations, because we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, the way we practice this faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior is very different. Catholics have their ways of doing things, the Orthodox, the Adventists, the Baptists, the Pentecostals, and, and, and on and on and on. We all have our, our, our different ways of, of expressing our faith in Jesus, be that as it may. The fact that we are divided, the fact that we prize, we love, we accept different beliefs and practices that we cherish, that we see as giving meaning to who we are, all of that should never push aside the fact that we have a unity, a spiritual unity in Jesus. It's not physical unity, it's not denominational unity, it is not organizational it's none of that. It is a basic spiritual unity we have in Jesus. We should acknowledge that. So when we, when we as Adventist pastors and, and professors and, and church workers, when we talk about other Christians, we should always keep that in mind, mm. that there is that basic unity between us and them. And so it's no longer an us and them. It's a we together in Jesus. Now, we may want to talk about our differences, why the Sabbath is important to us, and why for them, perhaps the sacraments are very, very important to them, a whole lot more than to us, and, and so on. 
yes, we may want to talk about those, the biblical reasons for this, the theological reasons for this, the historical reasons for this. And, uh, but we should always do it with a sense of love and a sense of, of knowing there is a connection with Jesus. I, mm. I, I don't think we should forget that. And I think we, we forget it too often. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. And it's one of those things that like I... I not more now that COVID's here, but like I would visit visit a lot of like Sunday churches and there's so much to gain from, you know, oh, how are they doing worship or like where do their messages tend to go? And and I just, you know, it, but I know that not everyone is comfortable of being able to sit in that space and think, you know, am I as a as a part of my identity being lost here? And I wonder like you know, I, I heard somebody say this again today in one of my classes that, you know, Adventists, you know, we don't focus so much on social programs because we are here to give a very specific prophetic message. And to me, it feels like, well, if, if, if that's the only function that we serve and, or that's the main focus, like then we're missing out on a lot by not being in relationship with other churches who are doing like uh, the, the social programs and, and social justice well, right? Like it seems like if this is an element that's a part of a body, but we have detached ourselves maybe from the conversations of a greater body and being nourished by the ways that they do some things well and then being nourished by the ways that we do things well. We have something to share uh, with one another and uh, to receive from the other and also to participate together in that communion. It has been one of the goals of the modern ecumenical movement, particularly in the last 30 years or so, perhaps a little bit more in the last 30 years, to emphasize this community sharing of, of responsibilities, of opportunities, to help the poor, to help the disadvantaged, to help uh, in a moment of crises, um, to, to focus uh, their resources together in, in trying to help a community that is being devastated by an event of some kind, wh whatever it may be. And, and, and oftentimes our Adventist congregations in some of these communities have helped, have participated. Now we may not have called it an ecumenical movement or moment, but it has been an ecumenical moment. When there is a catastrophe, or let's say a flooding or fire in a community and five, 10 churches get together to help that community. And there's a, one or two Adventist churches in, in that group that are helping. That's an ecumenical moment. Mm -hmm. it, it is done because we share something in Jesus. We share something with common humanity, period but also in Jesus and together for the name of Jesus, for the glory of God, we're going to do something together. Uh, you know, I have a sense that our Adventist black American churches are a whole lot more attuned to this kind of conversation than most of the Caucasian or predominantly white congregations in the Seventh-day Adventist church in North America. Mm. Uh, there are some of our ethnic, perhaps we, it's not a good term, but let me use that term. Uh, some of our ethnic churches in, in America, Adventist ethnic churches, are a whole lot more attuned to some of these activities and some of these ecumenical moments than, than some of the other congregations are. So it's not, it's not an equal perspective here. Uh, I, 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 
I think that our Black American churches are by far much more having these kinds of ecumenical moments in their communities than many of the other Adventist churches. Maybe you ought to learn from them as well. Uh, they, you don't lose your identity by being kind and by being serviceable, by being part of a community effort to help something in the community for the name of Jesus and for the glory of God. You don't lose your identity. In fact, you gain, I would say. You, you gain a great deal. And, and it's okay to do that. And that is an ecumenical activity. Now, it's not an organized one. It's not creating a super church kind of activity. Uh, and, and, and its goal is perhaps just simply to provide punctilier help because of a catastrophe of some kind. Be that as it may, it's an ecumenical activity. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am looking forward to hearing your feedback for this episode, but stay tuned for part two as we kind of wrap up this conversation and come to some pretty cool conclusions. And I really look forward to, you know, reading your comments. And if there are topics you'd like me to tackle in future episodes, uh, please write in and I will see you next week.